and I'll I'll start today. We're going to be doing obviously um, Ibsen. We're be doing a lot of a lot of Ibsen today. Try and get through yeah the first half of the play, first three quarters of the play. Um, I do want to start with a, a little overview over that file I just uploaded this morning, which should help with um, with trying to write this paper. And it's from this book here. It's um, Eric Hyotes, uh The Elements of Academic Style. And I, I think it's a good book to talk about the structure of paragraphs and then paragraphs in a larger paper. And so I put that up there as an aid. Um, I just talk through how to use this chapter and then any questions you might have and then we could go from there. Um, let's see. So the place I'd say to start is um, page 60 of that book. So it's the second second page of the PDF. And Hyot here has uh, five different types of sentences. Now what he's referring to in this, this chapter is um, how to structure a paragraph around types of sentences with each sentence doing a particular thing in order to advance your argument. And the five types of sentences he outlines on that page, page 60 or the second page of the PDF. Um, abstract, less general, conceptual summary, description, and then concrete are kind of the four topic headers. Uh, and how these sentences are laid out, you can see on page, the next page, page 62, or two pages later rather, page 62, and it's kind of an uneven U, meaning you go from sentence four to sentence five. So sentence four down to sentence one, and then back up to sentence five. Hence the name uneven U, is the right side of the U is taller, so to speak, than the left side of the U. So what does this mean, and why is this helpful to you? Well, the best way, or one of the best ways, to explain your point is to move from the large idea down to smaller ideas to defend it, down to actual evidence from the text or work that you're using, and then back up to give context for that evidence that you've cited. So Hayo says, let's start with a sentence four level. Um, and I'll, I'll just stop here a second and ask, uh, is anybody having trouble finding the document? Do people have the document in front of them? Were they able to open it? Okay, good. We have we have one. Uh, anybody else? Okay, good. All right, so let's let's get back to the uh, the kind of the outline. Um, so Hayo said, start with a sentence four. What we see from page 60 to sentence four is, 
less general, oriented towards a problem, pulls ideas together. So um, you can see on the, the page next to it, um, page 61, an example of an uneven U paragraph. Um, and we'll, we're going to go through that. Let me just read out the sentence types. Um, but this would be kind of a statement of a, a larger idea, right? The idea of the paragraph, the governing idea, maybe even the argument of the paragraph would be another way to say that. Then a conceptual summary. This draws two or more pieces of evidence to introduce a broad example. Then a description. So the conceptual summary is maybe where in the play something is happening. Then a sentence two would be a description of that thing, right? They, he uses the term here, establishing shot. So um, as we see in uh, act two of the Prince of Hamburg, um, when the prince has, uh, has become distracted when he learns that he has uh, the main female character's glove, right? Just, just let me know where you are. And then oh, sentence one level is concrete evidence. And what that means, raw unmediated data or information is literally quotes from the thing itself. So the Prince of Homburg says, is this your glove? She responds, oh yes it is, right? That would be the raw evidence. Um, and then you would move back up uh, explaining that evidence. Why is it important? And then explain why that evidence pulls different ideas together. And then lastly, you'd go to a sentence five, a sentence you haven't, you haven't written yet. It would be presumably the last sentence of your paragraph in which you come to a conclusion about the evidence you cited. So let's take a few minutes and look at page 61. This is the third page of the PDF. And here you could see the uh, a paragraph uh, with the sentence markers, right? So the um, the level of sentence for each sentence. So begin with the problem of character. Here's a level four, right? Um, we're going to be discussing the theme of character, whatever that is, that the reader understands that the novel is populated by minor characters, that these seeming protagonists have come uh, detached from their usual narrative position, depends heavily on intertextual references to a number of other works. Okay, so now it's, um, here's a conceptual summary. And what that means, you could see here, is a summary of the concept, of the idea you're exploring, right? Um, that basically what he's saying is references to other works. It's a complicated sentence, so I'll, I'll parse it for you. References to other works, other novels, other movies, whatever, um, teach us about minor characters. So when you uh, read a book and there's a, a minor character, you know, a character with not a lot to do in the action, what we know about that character is informed by everything else we've read and how familiar that type of character is, right? Because that, that's what intertextual means. Okay, so that's three. That's a summary of the concept the paragraph is discussing. Uh, these range from the popular to the highbrow. So 
we're getting a, um, a, a an establishment shot here, as he calls it. But an establishment to what? Let's see. Belvedere and Nestor, for example, are the names of the butlers in the 1980s American television sitcom Mr. Belvedere and the Tin Tin graphic novel, respectively. Clopin and Yorick hail from Hugo's Hunchback of Notre Dame and, of course, Hamlet. Okay, so the establishment shot says that um, the intertextual characters, the characters that come from other works, they come from um, really artsy, uh, really sophisticated works, and also from popular culture, right? This is highbrow and lowbrow. That's a sentence two. Sentence one is the raw data. Now, it's not a quote, but it is factual information, right? Belvedere and Nestor are, are from the f television show Mr. Belvedere and a graphic novel, or graphic novel series. Um, Clopin and Yorick come from highbrow stuff, right? The, the Victor Hugo novel, a Victor Hugo novel, and a, a Shakespeare play. Okay, so that is the hard evidence. Again, not, not a quote. I know I said before that you're looking for a quote. It, it's data, right? A quote can be, a da can be data. Um, a fact can be data. A, a statistical conclusion can be data. They would all count as sentence one if you were using that sentence to explain or state the data. Okay? Um, and then we start to move out. Altogether, these characters amount to a cavalcade of conspicuous minority, an exemplification of the notion that quantity has a quality all its own. Okay, so here that's a level three sentence. We no longer need to do an establishment shot because on the first side of the U, right, we've, we've already established it. We've already established we're talking about highbrow and lowbrow and then given an example. So we don't need to establish highbrow and lowbrow again. You're free to do so, but you might not need to. And so what we have here is, is, is a, another sentence three, another conceptual summary, right? We are talking about the concept of the paragraph again, but in revisiting that concept, we're giving it more detail. So altogether, these characters amount to a cavalcade of conspicuous minority. Um, and, and his idea here is that the novel then um, has a has the positive quality of quantity, meaning kind of more is better, right? And that's what he's arguing, that the benefit of reading a novel is you could just shove a bunch of stuff in there and it's really cool, right? It's, you know, a menagerie of characters. Um, and this, if we go back to his previous sentence three or level three, um, the previous one is that our understanding of minor characters is based on our ability to recognize them from other works, right? So we need to recognize characters from other works. His second level three sentence is that this ability to recognize characters, um, that this allows the novel to be really cool because you could populate it with a bunch of people and quality itself, uh, quantity itself is a form of quality. Okay. Um, my gauge jumped a little bit. One second. There we go. Just a sound problem there. Okay, good. Um, let's keep going. Then moving down. 
To understand the novel thus requires us to understand how that uh, categorological quality emerges from onomastic proliferation. Okay, and so now we have a um, now we're pulling the idea together uh, that these these the types of characters um, kind of produces more work, right? Um, and in turn, understanding what the novel might mean by quality at all. And so we end here with a, a really the last sentence. Half of it is a sentence four, half of it, half of it is functioning as a sentence five, which is fine, right? You could do probably would be best to do independent sentences for each of these levels, but if your final clause does the work of a, a level five, you know, that's, that's obviously fine. Um, what we have here is in level four, uh, the, the kind of conclusions we reach, right? We pull the ideas together, we have our main idea and kind of restated but deepened. The previous level four is um, is we have a problem of character. The latter level four uh, tells us how you understand character by its kind of proliferation within the novel. Um, and then the level five, and in turn understand what the novel might mean by quality at all, it connects to the larger idea, probably the larger idea of the essay, which is what is the quality of the novel, right? The form of the novel. That's the biggest idea. And a paragraph can't cover that. Um, probably even a chapter can't cover that, honestly. But, um, but that's where he ends in kind of referencing the, the larger form, right? The, the larger form being the essay itself, right? And so you have that kind of movement in in your sentences. And we could also see this later in this chapter, this idea of, um, of paragraph structure also kind of mirrors the uneven you. It's, it's sort of like a fractal, right? If you zoom in on a fractal, it retains the same shape that if you zoom out, that's, that's the idea of a, a fractal. The uneven you works in that same way. You zoom in on a paragraph, it has the same shape as if you zoom out and see the entire essay. And so if you go to pages um, 70, 71, so ba basically pages 70 through 73, you can see the kind of the larger structure here. Um, and he kind of breaks down the uh, each kind of paragraph um, by sentences and also each paragraph by where it belongs within this kind of larger, um, larger uneven you. CK. Okay. Uh, yes. So that would be the idea here. So it's, it's this kind of larger uneven you and the sample he gives is an essay about the Christopher Nolan movie Memento. Um, and yeah, and you could see that, you could see that here on page 73, he gives a kind of even more, um, even more dense diagram of those paragraphs and how they fit together. And he kind of divides it up into, 
paragraphs one, two, three, and how they they link together. You're probably gonna have, you're definitely gonna have more paragraphs than that in this paper, but you could also link units together too. And you could see that on page 70, you have paragraphs one, two, three. Um, that makes a section, then there's a section B with paragraphs one, two, and then there's another section A, section B, etc. Um, and so this is kind of a, an outline for the paper more broadly. But I think the thing to take away from this especially is with your paragraph writing, right? How to incorporate data in there. You don't just write the data at the beginning of the paragraph and walk away, or write the data at the beginning of the paragraph and explain where in the paper it came from. You want to kind of surround the data with a description of your ideas, um, a bit of context so we know where the data is coming from, um, and then show how the data illuminates or helps expand your ideas. And then lastly, how the ideas of that paragraph connect to the idea of the paper overall. All right, any questions about that? I know that's a lot to throw at you in 20 minutes, um, but uh, take a look at it, read it through. Uh, this is meant not to be so much, uh, you know, like extra homework or anything like that, but rather to assist you in, in your essay. I know that like when I get jammed up, sometimes being really schematic, like kind of like making a diagram and having to literally just plug things into the diagram um, can help. Right, uh, just because you know, you, you it gives you the kind of structure that can concentrate your knowledge and your creativity. Okay, so any questions about that? Good, and if not, let's get into Hedda. Okay, so let me get my notes up here. Okay. Okay. So, um, we did last time talk about Hedda Gabler and the, the well-made play. We talked about how this might be a well-made play. This idea of, um, kind of the dramatic discovery surrounding an object in which a secret might be concealed. And we talked about how, um, Loveborg's manuscript stands in as that object. Um, and so we also have this idea that we talked about last time of the problem play, right? What, what is, what is a problem play? We talked about this on Monday. So does, does anybody remember what that actually meant, what that concept is? Yes, yeah. It discusses social issues, right? So it kind of states a, a social problem um, and it allows the play to discuss it. So let's talk about the big question does this, we, we've just kind of decided this works as a well-made play. Does Hedda Gabler function as a social problem play? 
or a problem play. Let's start with yes or no. All right, even if you're not sure, try and jump into the either yes or no camp, just, just to get the conversation going. Okay, so who thinks it might be a, a social problem play? Okay. Good. So we have we have two people biting here. Um, so it's Aliana and, and Christopher. So what would be the type of thing being discussed, if it is? You could say you're not sure. It just feels like it is. Okay. So Aliana says social class and aristocracy. Okay. So what would be the aristocracy in this play? All right. So yeah, so we we do have uh, Christopher saying here uh, societal issues. Um and yeah, there there are certain societal issues probably at work. Aliana, I'm just going to push back against aristocracy. Just because I don't think that there's necessarily an aristocracy represented in this play. And Mackenzie says, I feel like there are little themes of it, but I don't see it as one. Okay, good. Uh, I, I like that response, Mackenzie. It, this is a hard play in terms of the problem that's being presented. Because it feels like a problem play. Even though you guys haven't, you know, maybe not have ever read a social problem play. Um, there's this kind of sense that there's something wrong, right? Um, there's you know, a sense of something wrong, but it's really hard to see what that thing is. Uh, but I'll ask you this. What character do you think that kind of sense comes from?
if there's a societal issue here, uh, or the societal problem, um, something uneven, what character is revealing that, or is that societal problem? Okay. Okay. So Mackenzie says uh, in Hedda, because she's trying to obtain certain things, but she can't, can't get them, I imagine. Vivian, uh, maybe Hedda, since she looks down on people and manipulates them. Okay. Great. Great. So talking more about Hedda, she does manipulate people. It's certainly correct. Um, and Mackenzie, you're absolutely right. Um, Hedda wants things that she can't get, right? And Hedda maybe never gets them. I mean, she's dead by the end of the play, so, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, potentially that's that she didn't get those things. Um, but she does want things, and for that reason, as Vivian is citing here, she is manipulating people. Um, and she also does look down on people. And we get that right away in the first act, right? When she's talking to the ant. Um, what does she do to hurt the ant? She does something deliberate to to make the ant feel bad. This is Tessman's ant, Miss Tessman. Um, well, at the beginning, she like says something about the bonnet, and she's like oh, like the maid left her bonnet here, like something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So the ant was really excited. She got a new uh, hat and parasol to impress to impress Hedda. And Hedda pretends that, what we think is that initially Hedda's critical of the maid for leaving her hat around and just made a mistake. But apparently Hedda intentionally said that in order to hurt the ant. Right, or aunt if you're from Massachusetts. Uh, so that that's kind of interesting. And I think that speaks to um, what, what you were saying here, or typing here, Vivian, um, that she has a kind of uh, uh, a vaulted look at the world, right? She's, she's looking down on the world in a lot of ways. And I think that that initial conflict, a minor one, but kind of important for setting the character, right? Uh, shows how much she kind of looks down on people. Um, so we also have it a little bit with her conversation with um, Mrs. Elvstead, right? So M Mrs. Elvstead is a more minor character. Um, and in our, our first act, Hedda and Mrs. Elstead are talking to one another, and we learn that they were in school together. Um, and, you know, were they, they were not friends in school. Apparently, Mrs. Elstead was always scared of Hedda. Apparently, Hedda bullied her a little bit, kind of pulled her hair and whatnot. Um, but now, uh, Hedda is acting friendly towards acting friendly towards her. Um, why do we learn that Hedda is beginning to act friendly towards towards her, towards Mrs. Elvstead?
Mrs. Elstead is here to see someone, right? She's in town to meet up with someone. Who is who is that person? Um, it's the guy who wrote the book. I'm blanking on his name right now. Yeah, Loveborg. Oh yeah, Loveborg. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good name, Loveborg. Um, good. So she's she's kind of left her husband. She's meeting up with this guy, and why is this of interest to Hedda? There's a number of reasons, but what are some of the reasons why the, this meeting with Loveborg or Loveborg himself is of interest to Hedda? Um, she used to like have a thing with him, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah. They used to be romantic together, um, you know, with Ellert. Ellert Loveborg, and there was an incident with pistols, where right she she fired a gun, kind of in his general direction, um, but eventually the the relationship doesn't work out. So why doesn't? What are kind of some of the things said about the relationship that explains why it doesn't work out? And this is in Act Two when they're having this conversation, Loveborg and Hedda. So this is towards the end of Act 2. Not quite the end of Act 2, but getting to there. Um, So reading through some of this, maybe. Um, This is Loveborg. Yes, Hedda, and the confessions I used to make, telling you things about myself that no one else knew of then. About the way I'd go out, the drinking, the madness that went on day and night... For days at a time, ah, what power was it in you, Hedda, that made me tell you such things? You think it was some power in me? How else can I explain it? And all those uh, devious questions you asked me, that you understand so remarkably well, to think you could sit there and ask such questions so boldly, Hedda, deviously, please, Loveborg, Loveborg, yes, but boldly all the same interrogating me about all that kind of thing, Hedda. And to think you can answer, Mr. Loveborg. Loveborg. Yes, that's exactly what I don't understand now, looking back. But tell me, Hedda, the root of our bond, excuse me, the root of that bond between us, wasn't it love? Didn't you feel on your part as if you wanted to be cleansed, if you wanted to cleanse and absolve me when I brought those confessions to you? Wasn't that it, Hedda? No, not quite. Loveborg. What made you do it then? 
Hedda. Do you find it so very surprising that a young girl, if there's no chance of anyone knowing, Loveborg, yes, Hedda, that she'd like some glimpse of a world that, that she's forbidden to know anything about? Loveborg. So that was it. Partially. Partially that, I guess. Loveborg. Companionship and a thirst for life. But why then? Well, let's stop there. Because I've, I've read a lot there. So there's this Loveborg is kind of a somewhat romantic figure, right? He um, he is a bit of a wild man. We know he's very, very smart, and um, it seems based upon the book he just published and the manuscript he is about to publish that he is also very brilliant. And so Hedda says in this, this short section that we just reviewed here that um, that for her, Loveborg offers a glimpse of a world that she wouldn't otherwise know anything about. Yeah. And so there's a, there's kind of an, an insight into their relationship, at least why it started to come about, was you have this kind of, you know, somewhat romanticized scholar who is, you know, offering her kind of insight into the world. Um, and then Loveborg says to Hedda that she broke it off. Um, and she says, yes, when that closeness of ours threatened to grow more serious. Um, and then Loveborg says, uh, why didn't you shoot me down? Literally, like, why didn't you shoot me with a gun when you had a chance? And Hedda says, I'm much too afraid of scandal. And he says, yes, Hedda, you're a coward at heart. So we have this... Uh, relationship predicated upon this kind of romanticized notion of the world, and, and Loveborg offers her offers her that insight. Um, she cancels it, ends the relationship when it feels too serious. I'm wondering what you guys think of that. Um, and also, we learn at this point she's scared of a scandal, right? And this this comes back later, right? When Loveborg. Um, quote-unquote, commit suicide, which might not actually be suicide, uh, that Dr. Brock is able to um, get control over Hedda because she is scared of a scandal again. Okay, so that's kind of what's going on here, a little bit with their past relationship. Um, let's talk a little bit about Loveborg himself. What What is he doing in town? What's going on with him? this what is Loveborg interested in doing um, doesn't he want to like write his second book or whatever hmm? well he's written it yeah well he said he had like he'd written one and then he had like the actual copy that he wanted to write or something like that mm -hmm. yeah so he's, he's written one about kind of the past 
roughly, which Tessman says, uh, you know, this is great work of genius about Hall history. And he has the manuscript of the next book, which is, they talk about it as kind of the future. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure what that means, but I think the idea is that it is a, um, a great work about, you know, we have one book that has been published all about the past, all of history. And then we have this book about what the fu- what the future holds, right? Where is history going? Um, so that's what he's doing. He's in town. He's, he's going to read some of the manuscript to his, his friend Tessman. There is also um, some hint that there's a little competition possibly between Loveborg and Tessman. What are they possibly competing on or competing about? Um, well, weren't they both like writing books? Mm-hmm. They're both writing books, but also um, there's a university post that Tessman is relying on, and it might be the case that Loveborg is also competing for that post. All right, now that that kind of falls away. We learn that Loveborg just isn't that interested um, in the kind of you know these material things. But just clean my screen there. But there is at first this kind of danger that maybe Loveborg is going to get the post. And of course Tessman is, well, this post was all but promised to me. So there's a little bit of competition there. Let's keep doing some more comparisons between Loveborg and Tessman. So Loveborg has this the these works that sort of talk about all of history and then then the future. Um, compare that to the work of Tessman. So, so what is Tessman doing? What is his, what has he been researching? We could see a little bit of this in a conversation between Hedda and Brack. Uh, and, and it's about um, right at the beginning of Act Two. And so it's about two pages in. Um, and Hedda says, I'll, I'll read some of this. Uh, My dear judge, Tessman is a specialist. Brock, undeniably, Hedda. And specialists aren't at all amusing to travel with, not in the long run anyway. Brock, not even the specialist that one loves, Hedda. Ugh, don't use that syrupy word, Brock. What's that, Mrs. Hedda? Hedda. Well, just try yourself. Listen to the history of civilization morning, noon, and Brock everlastingly. Hedda. Yes, yes. 
And then all this business about domestic crafts in the Middle Ages, it's really too revolting. Okay, so you have this one guy, this kind of wild man, um, with these huge works about all of the world, right? And then you have Tessman, who's studying domestic crafts in the Middle Ages. Um, he is a specialist. That's a really big difference between Loveborg and Tessman, right? Uh, Loveborg talks about all of history and all of the world. Um, you know, he's like a Hegel figure. He, he can explain the, the movement of history. And we see with Tessman, Tessman is a, um, is a guy who studies the kind of crafts that people did in their homes during a small period of time, right? It's, you know, um, as someone who's, you know, in academia now, I can tell you that this is kind of what academics do. They find a very, very, very narrow area of interest and learn very, 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 very many things about that small area of interest. What you discover over time is there's like, like 15 people on earth who care. Um, and apparently this is not a, this is not a recent problem. Um, this is also, I guess, a 19th century problem. Uh, but what we could see in this play is that, uh, it's not a particularly romanticized life. The specialist is somebody who can't open you up to insights about the world the the kind of grand philosopher that Loveborg is, he can possibly. Um, you know, he can he can give you those things as long as things don't get too serious, as Hedda says. Um, any interpretation as to what that means? Why can Loveborg be helpful to her, provide her a look at a world she otherwise wouldn't have access to? Um as long as things don't get too serious. So how I'm reading that, this is, uh, this was the, towards the end of act two, when Hedda is talking about, talking to Loveborg about their relationship is serious is 
possibly a, a synonym for real, for substantial or, or kind of realistic. Um, why is a real relationship or realistic or kind of, you know, th that type of thing, a quote-unquote real relationship, why is that undesirable? Well, I guess because basically that usually leads to a marriage, and maybe she wasn't ready for that or wanted to see if she could do better. Okay. Sure. That leads to marriage and, and kids and all that stuff. Um, and yeah, and I think, you know, definitely not, not ready, certainly. Um, and maybe she could do better. Um, but it's also, and I think this touches on this idea of, of kind of the problem and the you know the problem play here is that having a kind of romantic having a tryst with a genius and you know you you get so upset you point a gun at him and and all this type of thing it's very melodramatic but it's not how real people live right eventually when you settle down and get married um you, you that goes away right and eventually there's sort of a um living day-to-day -day type um type relationship that builds up uh it, it's sort of much less exciting it's the type of relationship she is now in and i think one of the problems that hedda is dealing with in this play is the the sort of the fantasy which loveborg was in her past and Loveborg sort of represents again um versus the, the sort of real world which is is Tessman which is this uh not wealthy but you know middle class upper middle class respectability um and Hedda is both somebody who uh kind of wants to transcend that but is also trapped by that, right? She is scared of a scandal. Um, in the end of the play, how does Brock uh, presumably blackmail her, right? Brock says he now has something on her. And the reason is the gun that Loveborg used, she got, he got from her. And so now she's scared of a scandal and Brock says, I won't tell anyone so long as you do what I say. And we could... You could leave it up to your imagination what the good judge wants from this pretty young woman. Um, and so there is in Hedda this conflict between the this hope, this fantasy of uh, a fantasy kind of based on these kind of romantic notions of um, life and love, and at the same time these constraints of you know, not only society and, and, you know, the kind of, um, the, the overly concerned nature of scandal that society has, but also the fact that we don't really live in a romantic world, right? Where geniuses provide us insights into fantastical worlds and, you know, uh, every interaction with a lover is, is pitched to a 10, right? It, it's the, the real world is actually pretty mundane most of the time 
Um, and I think this is one of the, the kind of problems, or we're getting towards the sort of problem that the play is presenting. Um, and it is 11 o'clock now, and so we will continue to explore these things later on, we'll focus more on Friday on Acts 3 and 4. All right, and I'll keep this line open for a little while um, for, for office hours. Okay, if not, uh, thank you very much, and I'll see you Friday.